believe it is the 14th episode of uh, the Estranged Podcast, if I haven't lost count. Today, um, we are with Tad Delay, who is a very special guest on the podcast. Great to we be did here. A, we, um, <laughs> we recorded the podcast last week um, and had a few technical difficulties. And I actually think, Tad, that it was the best podcast we've done so far. It was really, really interesting. I found it really, really interesting. Looking forward to getting back into it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I know these are like the really juicy topics that we all love talking about. So brilliant. Um, we're going to talk today about the film Alien. But before we go into the film, um, I thought it'd be just great to have Tad talk a little bit about his new book that's coming out. This is your third book, correct? It is, yeah. Yeah, it should be out within a few weeks as of this recording. So mm-hmm. end of end of July, beginning of August, somewhere in there. Brilliant. And um, so the title is Against. Mm-hmm. And could you tell the listeners a little bit about what you delve into in the book? Yeah, so what I do is uh, a mixture of critical theory, political philosophy, psychoanalysis, and I'm interested in applying that to American religion, and especially since 2016, the uh, evangelicalism, which I grew up in, but seems to be kind of a, a resurgent salient topic, because as this faith dies out, we're seeing this, this intense white lash, and, um, and, and that's not just not just producing Trumpism, but producing a number of, of resonances with capital and violence and racism and these migrant concentration camps and, um, you know, skepticism that there even will be a future in the in the face of a burning world. There's sort of a flight and a, a fantasy involved. And so I'm interested in psychoanalyzing those things and thinking about really the enjoyment. Uh, the, the one way that I kind of put it, I only mean this halfway jokingly, but I'm really interested in psychoanalyzing the enjoyment that leads uh, boomers to be so excited about the Perspective death of their own grandchildren, right? I mean, just how do you how do you get that kind of um, yeah. not and not it's not just sadism, right? That we're seeing mm-hmm. today. It's also a masochism, uh, voting against your own interests. For example, yeah. used to be a topic in like you know the what's a matter what's the matter with Kansas argument, right? Was a yeah. about about voting against your financial interest. Well, what happens now when we're seeing boomers vote against their uh, access to health care, right? Like literally mm-hmm. voting to kill themselves off um, mm-hmm. and yeah. kill off their progeny, and it, it, it's. It's a fascinating world that we're in, and, and that's kind of what I'm interested in exploring. So yeah, uh, Absolutely. yeah. Uh, you know, it, there's there's many interesting like elements to that because part of healthcare has always been an interesting one. As a European, you know, the, the, the healthcare system in America mm-hmm. is absolutely astonishing. Yeah, um, and also obviously, you know, we have a capital, you know, a very unequal capitalist system in the in the UK, um, which is, you know, has nominally some socialist elements, but you know, there's huge amounts of inequality. Sure. But, you know, the, the idea of the American dream and kind of I had often read it as keeping this idea alive that you could be the one that is the one that makes the millions of dollars and the system kind of favoring enterprise, et cetera, et cetera. But it's obviously becoming clearer and clearer that that being that one who lives the American dream is just not it's not a, it's not a reality. And yet people still keep voting in that interest Mm -hmm. it's almost a kind of a socialism for the rich Mm -hmm. with the prospect of you could be the one who becomes the rich well and there's that there is that classic joke that you know um every american is just a temporarily humiliated millionaire or something like that but but i I think that something like even more insidious is going on because i i teach you know 18 to 25 year olds in college mm-hmm. and I find that among reactionaries at least and this is, this is different for the students in the class that are more socially minded and interested in collective responses but among the reactionaries in my class the more you make them think about the ethics and how dire the situation is and how much the situation is stacked against them it really still does make them double down there's I don't get the sense that there's this um, liberation of thought and realization Mm-hmm. that uh, the system system is rigged against you. Like even if I talk about like the stats that say you have something like a four percent chance of, of changing classes in your lifetime, uh, you will almost certainly live and, and die in the same class you were born into. Um, yeah. There still is this this like well, but I'm going to school for business or I'm going to yeah, school yeah. for accounting. I'm I'm going to school for something that can yeah. give me a leg up in life. Yeah. Um, that's that's everywhere still for sure. Yeah, it's interesting because my my parents' uh, generation in the United Kingdom, I'm not sure what it was like in the US, but they were really the last generation where one could really change class. I mean, to Mm -hmm. talk personally, my my mum's father was a factory worker and his 
and her mother worked in a kitchen and then she uh, a school kitchen and she did very well at school she went to a grammar school she went to you know the equivalent of college did very well had a mm-hmm. great career but yeah no it's interesting because that's the generation and we i guess we would call them boomers where it it, it worked out. Right. Well, it, yeah. well, the other thing is actually that's not entirely true because obviously grammar, I don't know if you have this notion of a grammar school in, in the US, but the grammar schools are selective at 11 years old mm. and you go to a nominally, you get a nominally more classical kind of quote unquote better education. So it's very selective. And it's, you know, I'm not sure what percentage, it's a small percentage of children who, who go. So even then when there was the, a greater possibility, it was still... Possibly not that more, much more than 4%, really. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, there's this great idea that, you know, the 70s were a time of... Yeah, but de- definitely now. I mean, it's interesting seeing people of my parents' generation who have children who are millennials, mm-hmm. really, seeing the reality of how things are different. It was, di- you know, difficult for them then, but yeah, even yeah. more. And not to... I, I, you know, I, I, I kind of... Um, am loath to stack generations against each other because I feel like it's, a, it's just a, sin- a system that this is an inevitability of the system itself and it just depends, you know, it's just a contingent thing that you might have graduated at a certain year. Right. Um, yeah, so, you know, I would definitely be against any kind of revenge politics against baby boomers, but, you know, it is interesting that we still really buy into this idea that, oh, but it'll be different for me. Yes. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, dynamic that we have going yeah. on here, right? So, it really is. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, like one thing that made me think is that you know, like I'm, I'm a great example because my parents uh, were both had a high school education, mm-hmm. and you know, my dad worked at a at a dry cleaners that he managed, yeah. and he made uh, a, accounted for inflation and cost of living. He made basically the same, or perhaps depending on the year, a little more than I make with two masters and a and a mm-hmm. doctorate as a as a college professor, right? Yeah, um, because most college professors like me are adjuncts and we average mm-hmm. twenty to twenty five thousand dollars a year with no benefits right and, and, yeah, and that's yeah. just a this is a crazy world right yeah, so it's a, it's it's um yeah so like that that chances at, at class change or or difference mm-hmm. is is bizarre but um yeah there, there, there's a grand mixture of ignorance but i think we need to kind of take seriously the the idea that there's kind of a um in anger involved as well right like mm-hmm, we're, we're mm-hmm. also talking about like generations that are just mad that their um grandkids won't call them anymore because they're mm-hmm. these you know like racist and or or yeah, otherwise yeah, obnoxious yeah. right it's like there mm-hmm. is this this uh, antagonism and and mm-hmm. much of it's very warranted but mm-hmm. um but uh yeah so you know and, and nobody likes to hear that you actually were given all sorts of advantages that mm-hmm. other people aren't right that's a mm-hmm. hard thing for people to hear and so yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and it's not so. to say it was easy even for them, sure. you know, it's just, but you know, we're talking about, and it's, certainly you see this in education, um, you know, obviously in the US in particular, and we, we have a, a, a student loan system in the UK so with slightly different terms, but those two sites, I mean, there are obviously emergence in other areas, we're talking about immigration and things like that, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's almost, the, the numbers, the figures are just astronomical, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just people people making 10 20 30 thousand dollars a year with hundreds of thousands of dollars and you know it's a, sure. it's an insanity I mean, yeah it's, yeah it's an absolute insanity i'm a great but example yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's no one that's better that uh, accumulating student loans than me i think but but it's, yeah. it's the, the irony is it's the people who are supposed to be you know who will be the teachers who will be the members of the system are the mm. ones who are almost the most harmed by it mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's um it's crazy but the, as you say that you know there, there are many factors at play and obviously we've talked about the economic factors or some of the economic factors but there was an interesting thing we touched on last week um and this is something that you would know a lot better than i do um coming from you know a, a more a religious background um the idea of the end of the world sure and a yeah kind of yeah pleasure in that and how it fits into the the, the evangelical narrative. Yeah, no, I, I, that was actually kind of the first thing that I wanted to write mm-hmm. about in my book. So it's, yeah. it's the first chapter. 
Um, and I think it's, I mean, just, just to kind of like briefly orient people, we don't mm-hmm. keep very good statistical data on how many people even believe that the future will exist, right? And, mm-hmm. and in the religious world, there's kind of a, a similar mirror pessimism to the way that the UN talks about climate change, where they, they kind of talk about the horror up to 2100. And then they mm-hmm. kind of don't project after that, right? And ostensibly it's because there's too many things that could change between now and then to not really know. Um, mm. But also I, I think another part of it is just the sheer horror of what comes after that period mm-hmm. um, that, that kind of makes it easier to just not talk about a world in which we have 50% more people but mm-hmm. 50% less food, right? Those types mm-hmm. of things are, are just too horrifying to really get into. And um, our data suggests that, I, I start off with um, in my chapter, um, looking at a, a Pew survey from 2010 where roughly a third of Americans and about uh, half of Christians say that they don't believe that the world will still be here in four decades, right? So so that, so that at the time, that's 2050, right? Yeah. Of saying Jesus will come back or something like yeah. that. And we, the, 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 so I, I went about collecting every survey that we have mm-hmm. of future denial uh, across the world with Americans in particular, American Christians, American evangelicals. And what I'm seeing in the data is that, A, we don't keep really good track of this. And then, B, mm-hmm. there's problems with statistical evidence because it doesn't yeah. tell you intensity and people might kind of assent to something because you ask yeah. them a leading question. And, and there is a very big difference in whether you ask people, do you think Christ will come back in your lifetime or by the end of the 21st century, right? Th- yeah. th- those are different questions with different mm-hmm. threat levels of, of will yeah. it cut your life short. Um, but the way that I read it, if I could just say it really generally, I do think that there is about one in six people in the world probably think that this is the final century uh, for one reason or another. Everything from Jesus coming back to like climate apocalypse to zombie apocalypse, <laughs> depending on whatever you think about one in six. And I mm-hmm. think it is about one in three Americans don't believe that there's going to be a 22nd century. And then among mm-hmm. evangelicals who are, you know, put Trump into power. They, they, they make up mm-hmm. a dispar- like, uh, the, the, the majority of the Republican coalition mm-hmm. um, is um, the, the, they seem to be about somewhere between a half and two thirds of them do not mm-hmm. believe that there's a 22nd century, right? So when we ask people to respond to climate change and make up massive sacrifices for this thing, one pastor that I talked to once put it, I think, very best and kind of emblematic of the evangelical consciousness when he said, well, even if, Tad, even if we believe the climate scientist, why would we do anything about that? Like, what's mm-hmm. the point? You can't destroy what God has promised to destroy, right? You, and you can't save what God has promised to destroy. So yeah. so in his mind, like recycling is like an act of, of rebellion, right? Like it's an act of sin. Um, yeah. You know, so definitely um, getting off carbon is is a sin, right? And and that and that's 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 our problem today, right? Because yeah. uh, we have this individualistic mindset. We can reject our science. There's mm-hmm. like a myth that three percent of science scientists, you know, reject climate science or whatever, and that's just not mm-hmm. true at all. It, it was true ten years ago, but it's not true yeah. now. Um, and in the meantime, we have just too much carbon in the world and too many resources mm-hmm. and cheap energy. And if we mm-hmm. burned up all of the fossil fuels that we still have, uh, we'd go to 18 degrees Celsius warming, right? Um, and we would starve to death from lack of crop yields at about mm-hmm. a quarter of that, right? Like, I mean, so, th- so that's our problem, right? Is that yeah. there's, there's too much energy, um, there's too much pessimism. And um, I guess just to kind of land this plane, right? To, to mm-hmm. kind of get back to what you're talking about, if you tell the white evangelical, um, no, this is serious. We're we're on the cusp of of uh, the big question is not whether it's happening. It's, it's whether mm-hmm. or not we're still going to have grocery stores in thirty years. Right? It, it's mm-hmm. that serious. Um, if you tell them that, then you're also telling them your faith for your whole life has been in vain. You have been believing this yeah. big myth and you're an idiot and it's literally just been to increase the stock shares of, of uh, ExxonMobil, right? Like that's yeah. a threatening thing for people to hear, which doesn't mean that yeah. they shouldn't hear it, but it is, yeah. there's there's a number of things going on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a few things that um, I kind of, that uh, I've been thinking about with what you're saying. And obviously there's, in terms of yeah, people having to hit a certain thing, and obviously we have we have a uh, younger generation of uh, politicians who obviously are are really aware mm-hmm. of, of this the things we're talking about, and how whether you know the the, the right way is to lower people's defences, <laughs> but maybe it's it's just too it's too late. You know how do we how do we create um, 
a political environment whereby, you know, we have this this reactionary kind of antagonism and whether there's a way to lower defences of people who have thought a certain way for so long and how mm-hmm. do we really go, you know, whether the system we have is is really fit for purpose in terms of in terms of finding a way forward. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I remember you talking about last week is the idea of there's this kind of pleasure or a confirmation of the narrative that the end of the world is a good thing because is there, there's going to be a, a, a an arriving of Jesus again or of God. Right. I, I mean, how does, yeah, how does yeah. that work? Yeah, well, I mean, I, the one way I think of it, and, and I discuss this a little bit in a bit in a book, and, and, and I should say that a, a lot of the, the kind of recent climate change data that's come out mm-hmm. just in the last year, it's just, it's just not in my book yet because, yeah. like, I, I wrote this a, a year and a half ago, and it, it's, it's about to come out, but, the, yeah, yeah, but there's so much more data. Um, but I was able to include some discussion about, for example, Trump moving the embassy in Israel to... Uh, to Jerusalem, mm-hmm. right, from mm-hmm. Tel Aviv. And um, so in, in dispensationalist thought, which is a lot of evangelicalism kind of latently, this is like the Left Behind book series and the, the rapture mm-hmm. and all of that, mm-hmm. um, there's this thought that, you know, an antichrist will proclaim peace in Jerusalem, which will be the capital and the kind of worldwide recognized capital of Israel, right? So when a white evangelical sees an American president moving an embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which they recognize from their Bible, unlike Tel Aviv, which they don't recognize from their Bible, this Mm -hmm. feels like getting closer to the prophecy. But I think very kind of importantly, it's like God is this divine chess master and he's using his his best player. You know, his his queen is Trump, Um, but he's not yet announcing checkmate. Right. He's he's getting closer. He's he's getting into position. But like, hey, you still you're if you're a boomer and you're like 60, like, hey, you've still got some time left. Like you can probably live out the rest of your life without it getting cut short on surprise right Um, and in the meantime like the best thing of all is if violence ramps up and Palestinians Mm -hmm. are kicked out and uh, you know if if there's this apartheid state developing Mm -hmm. that's exciting for them that's exciting for white evangelicalism because that's that's establishing this monarchical like totalitarian rule that they think is awesome Um, but but yeah but it's but it's 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 moving into position without yet announcing checkmate that I think that we don't give enough uh, thought to how much pleasure yeah, and I think, you know, pleasure is really, there's the idea of, you know, of course, the, the slow cancellation of the future. And there's obviously like different different factors that kind of come into play there. But there, there is a pleasure that, I mean, obviously death, death, we're all imbued with death drive, but there is a, a pleasure in destruction. And also, you know, what we're faced with is, is catastrophically difficult. Mm-hmm. And it is more comforting to just be, oh, well, it's all going to end than find some radical way in which we completely completely change the way in which we do and you know it's interesting talking about politics again this idea of maintaining this old american dream or the western idea of uh well centralist i don't even know a reaganite i i you know i still see the system where it's very reaganite um capitalism and that that's just the way things are mm-hmm. and just not readdressing you know a completely radically different um approach and yeah, you know, talking about this kind of getting people's defences up, the idea of the fact that the idea of um, nationalised healthcare is something that that is. I mean, this is that's nothing in comparison to what we'll have to do mm-hmm. to to change the way we organise things. Yeah, yeah, and and we, I mean, it, I think it's so important for people to think through how. Uh, not just entrenched people's imaginations are, but how little it takes to yeah. project a slightly different future. Mm-hmm. Like when mm-hmm. I make a, a I, I use the comment regularly in class that like, you know, um, it's it's hard for me to just like imagine a, a post money economy, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I just don't get how you couldn't have some sort of token system. Mm-hmm. Um, but since we invented money uh, like 2,700 years ago, or at least mm-hmm. coined money, yeah. <laughs> uh, interestingly, right in the same time when we created intercontinental empires and monotheism yeah, so yeah. which might have something to do with each other um, <laughs> but uh, in the same time the same location but like when we we invented money th- that in when you know our human race is is, is um, something on the order of 200,000 years old so we're talking mm-hmm. about something that's a little over one percent of our history and mm-hmm. capitalism is is just in the last two three hundred years right yeah, so yeah. when we talk about uh, what is what is the natural state what is the imagined um, difference in the world those are the types of it's very hard for people to kind of think about a radically different world and yet 
these yeah. things that we take for granted are brand new, right? You know, yeah. the idea yeah, that yeah, we yeah. could just decide to have healthcare is, is a bizarre Absolutely. concept. But sure. Absolutely. I just want to say, I apologize. This is uh, Los Angeles. It's very noisy. <laughs> yes. and the coffee machine was just grinding away. Okay. I can hear it just a little bit, but it's, it's not coming through too much on my oh, end. That's so. good. That's good. I know. I'm always, when you're recording, it's always like, ha, 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 what's right. going on? I heard someone in the corridor playing music earlier. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. We we have a we have a, a really novel novel system, really. But obviously, you know, in the, I mean, I'm not like a, a defender of the USSR or anything like that. But you know, configurations have been tried, and mm-hmm. you know, it's clearly on many levels a failure. But when it, within our within our ideological system, you know, we value certain things, and what 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 is what is uh, what is success, or what is happiness, or what is worth in in the world, and things like in the under the USSR, the you know, nineteen sixteen. We're talking about a country that had just come out of civil war, uh, World War One, lost World War One, civil war, mostly a feudal state, peasants. You know, the the, the average age was of, of uh, life expectancy was in the thirties, mm-hmm. and by the end of the USSR, you know, which is um, really it's a short period of time. The life expectancy was around seventy. Yeah, so, you know, and, and Mao had a similar thing where he like he Absolutely. right at doubled it. So yeah. uh, even with and all the know, brutality, <laughs> I mean, oh yeah, of course we can't deny the millions of people who died. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, this is an absolute fact. Um, and but under capitalism, we managed to deny. The suffer we outsource the death and suffering to other parts of the world. Sure, yes, and we yeah. really aren't aware of how many people capitalism has got. And it get you know it's funny because this is a real cold warism that gets people's defenses up. If you talk in it, you know, and I I am absolutely not in any way defending the USSR or Mao or Stalin or anything like that. But we have to be self reflexive of our, of our own system. Yeah, and yeah. That w- what wars are caused in the name of capitalism what the life expectancy is in the third world. And, you know, immigration is an interesting question that's really bubbled up at the moment. And there's obviously Marxist arguments about um, how immigration affects workers' rights in in the West. Mm -hmm. But we also have to remember that workers' uh, um, wages are already depressed because of the outsourcing to the third world. You know, it's not Mm -hmm. not a closed system. Mm -hmm. It's a global system. So... Yeah, there's lots of things to think about. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and I'm not sure that anybody can really compete with capitalism on the ability to yeah. uh, occupy, you know, a, a tenth of one percent of human history and to have mm-hmm. brought us this close to the collapse. Right. Yeah. Say what you will about about the catastrophes of any other system. Uh, there's there's just the, the level of destructiveness is just unrivaled. Mm-hmm. It's, it's yeah. not even remotely close anywhere else. And so yeah. Uh, but they, but yeah, but like at the level of policy, there there are legitimate questions to ask. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you balance like having a national healthcare system mm-hmm. with the desire also for open borders, hopefully, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, you know the the liberty to move about, and and how mm-hmm. do you, um, um, you, you know, uh, how do you how do you reconcile the fact that probably social democracies in in Europe are the best systems that we've yet come up with, but mm-hmm. like those are very different than the socialist dream, and so mm-hmm. like maybe mm-hmm. yet something better comes, but 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 it's perfectly fair to say that like social democracies and welfare state yeah. are probably the best that we've come up with Absolutely. yet, mm-hmm. um, and and still want to dream beyond that. I think I think that's Absolutely. a legitimate position to take. Yeah, and I think you know the work that you're doing, particularly kind of applying more kind of psychoanalytic ideas. And and looking at uh, these with a specific population in and against, and you've obviously done work in terms of uh, the idea of what God is and the unconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, this approach with capitalism itself is an interesting one because capitalism seems, you know, in terms of how people respond when you have any kind of critique of capitalism, it is, it's just what is what is. You know, there's a, mm-hmm. there's a, a cleverness to capitalism that is, and I think we can segue into the film after this point. Um, that capitalism is almost not necessarily a biological outcome of, hum- of the human race, but it, it has this, it paints itself as being, fr- this is freedom, this is what freedom is. Um, that this is the natural system that, and it, it, it's interesting, you know, how social justice movements and how 68, it was all integrated into capitalism itself. Mm-hmm. And we've seen this a lot with criticism of corporatist use of kind of, um, 
social the language of social justice and you know the pride flag poster everywhere you know it's it's really there's just kind of an, an inevitability to it so it's really important to really think about it in deeper ways and in different ways other yes, than just yes. what it, it sells you on the surface sure yeah yeah this is like what weber says in in the first chapter of like the the whatever his book the protestant work ethic and the spirit of capitalism mm-hmm. something like that right where he makes this case that one of the ways that capitalism defends itself is to say oh there's only ever been capitalism and the, the only time you're ever exchanging money for other services that's capitalism right and, yeah. and that's radically different than what marx or even uh smith and ricardo are thinking of in yeah. capitalism because to them capitalism is specifically a system where workers are not getting paid for the full value of their work. That's the only yeah. thing that defines it, right? That, that's yeah. where profit yeah. comes surplus from value, or surplus. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So like, but I I have to explain that. To, and, and, I, and I will say like one hope that I do have for thinking beyond this mm-hmm. sort of ideological framework. And, and I guess like the, the, my favorite definition of ideology is is kind of like it's a it's an imaginary relationship to a real situation, right? So yeah. It's a, yeah. so so my 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 kind of hope in in uh, challenging ideologies is that the moment that I explain to students who will say things like, well, capitalism just is, right? Like it just should exist, right? Obviously we're capitalists here in America, so we just should be. Um, the moment that I say, well, of course in capitalism, your boss is only hiring you because they're planning on getting like not paying you for the full value of work. I can see every student in the class nod because they're all wage laborers working mm-hmm. at Starbucks mm-hmm. or some you know, like yeah, something yeah. else. And so they all instinctively get this, right? And in, in Marx's point is kind of also that you're you're you understand instinctively that this is abusive. And the reason you're gonna stop understanding that is that you're gonna get enough power or you're gonna own some property and then your relationship mm-hmm. is gonna change. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, you know, it, it's true what old people say when they say like yeah. get older and then you'll change your mind yeah you will because yeah. you'll own property and then like you'll confirm what mark said about that right that's an interesting yeah. point i mean somebody i don't know where I was, somebody was talking about this in terms of yeah what happens when say you grow up working class but you get a good job you know how does that how does that change? you know but you're always um th- this idea obviously privilege is something that's bandied around a lot of kind of a term that you know more or less well who knows? It's, it's, it's a charged term at the moment. But, you know, as soon as you become, yeah, how do, how do you uh, how do you kind of reconcile? This is the thing. It's like you can both be, uh, and obviously in the, the economy, and lots of people are freelance these days. You can be both an employer and a worker at the same mm-hmm. time. But how do you know how it all kind of fits together is quite, quite an interesting one. But yeah, so talking about the idea of surplus value and being a worker and alienation, alienation and mm. um, <laughs> how do we relate this to the film alien we actually had a really interesting insight that kicked off our, uh, our kind of dialogue about the film yeah right week. well because i haven't seen this this film since i like probably in 10 years or so yes. but i was immediately struck by how much the film is all about how much work sucks it is just <laughs> the worst thing in the world um, and, uh, you know, you know, like the, the scene that I remember from being a child is that famous scene where Ripley is, is kind of keying into mother and trying to look up the, the command logs. And she mm-hmm. sees that an order has been sent from the company, which never has a face and, uh, you know, throughout the film changes and has various phases, but the company's always there. It's omnipresent. Um, and the, the company has told them, you know, priority one is, is preserving the organism, returning it for analysis, all other considerations, secondary, crew expendable. And, and I remembered crew expendable. I thought that was a really cool, poignant moment because mm-hmm. that's every worker's experience ever, right? Like that's, you know, um, I think I recently saw someone joke about like, you know, needing a mental health day on the verge of suicide. And of course, my worker, you know, my employer's like, well, please don't, you know, kill yourself. Like we are short staffed, right? We, we, we really need you to come in. Um, but yeah, so, so it was, yeah, but, but, you know, what, what hit me watching the film again is just how much the the awfulness of work is is pervasive throughout the film. Like the, the mm-hmm. film does not work. So, I mean, the first example is, they pick up the signal um, uh, that might be life and the they're trying to decide whether or not to investigate it and the science officer ash who we learn is like an android later but mm-hmm. throughout the the most of the film he's like this pseudo villain um yeah but he's really he's he's a science officer but he's actually an hr guy right like yeah, he's there yeah, to yeah, enforce yeah. like stay on task and everything 
Um, and he points out rightly that, well, you have a, a clause in your contract that you mm -hmm. basically forfeit all your profits from this trip if you don't investigate this thing, right? So literally this, this whole, the xenomorph is the thing that people focus on, but the xenomorph only works because the HR guy is trying to enforce uh, a line in the, the a clause in, in the contract mm -hmm. that forces them to go down to the planet and put them, their lives in jeopardy. And, you know, this is this is everywhere around this today, right? Mm -hmm, like this mm -hmm. is people put their lives on the line for companies all the time. People shorten their, li their lives yeah. for companies all the time without meaning to really mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. because you have to. Right. So yeah. absolutely. You, there's an interesting point that I, I want to relate this to to, well, the notion of millennials and college, etc. But, you know, the idea of so you as you said the 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 workers quote unquote in this film uh the kind of troop of people on the on the um the ship which is called interesting the 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 operating system is called mother and the yes, ship is called yeah. uh Arman nostromo i don't know nostromo. but anyway they, they are um they will forfeit their profits if they don't go and investigate so there's obviously you know a payment there but in terms of you know so capitalism has a really in amazing way of um of just gradually expanding so obviously we talked about colonialism and in alien this is this is uh, capitalism has spread to the universe the wider universe it always has mm -hmm. to find a new way and a new way that i think for our generation that capitalism managed to capitalize on something new is the unpaid labor of childhood and college mm. so you know we have all these young people who are so qualified who play the piano who have a million degrees who are college basketball players and this all happens even before any dollar is given to them you know there's this amazing amount of uh, i always wonder where it's going to go next so in alien you know it has expanded to the wider universe but where, <laughs> where can it go where can it go i know there's a there's a kind of a um, a policing of our own inner thoughts and there's a kind of a moral capitalism now who is the best moral you know commodity and obviously things like social media etc etc yeah, there's a there's a spreading of capitalism to absolutely everything yeah yeah but i yeah there's a guy who wrote a, a book i'm not sure his name a, a, you know a marxist critique of, of millennials and work which i thought was kind of a really interesting hmm. but um yeah he kind of looked at this nation obviously you see this a lot with with in college yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm so glad that I grew up like past when that happened because I because by the time I was in college, it was mm -hmm. it was clear that you're supposed to get like tons and tons of degrees, and it was clear yeah. that you're supposed to do internships. Yeah, but yeah. I never had impressed on me that I was supposed to do um, you know 22 different uh, you know internships during high school with yeah, like some yeah. nonprofit and like learn a piano and everything like that. Like I, I didn't have that commodification of, of my childhood as, as a way yeah. either. Um, yeah. But that is interesting, right? In in this whole you know capitalism has. Uh, you know, it, uh, phases of, of exploration and then industrialization and then financialization. Mm -hmm. And it's not clear what comes after that, right? Like, yeah, yeah. you know, so so I think that it makes sense that at the at the tail end of financialization, when we're sort of playing the the, the weirdest gimmicks and tricks that we can to kind of pretend like companies have uh, value when they clearly don't. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, at that, I mean, like Amazon, for example, is Absolutely. is what Amazon has done is just replicate the internet. It's just created a yeah. different type of Google. Um, mm -hmm. where if you want to find your product, it needs to be listed on Amazon, right? And, and yeah, so it, yeah. it's doing that to charge a toll, right? Yeah. And, and, and so it's not actually doing anything except getting you products a little faster in the post-service yeah. with very minor adjustments could have done that same thing, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but so the, you know, the next question is like, what do we do next? And it's like, well, you know, obviously we need to find a way to get into an exploration phase again. So we're going to yeah. go up to the stars and, and mine asteroids. And, and none of that's uh, ever going to work because... Uh, um, actually, we have like all the things that we have down here. The, the, again, the problem is we have specifically too much, right? That, uh, that's our big problem is, is that we have too much of everything that we need down here. Uh, I know the too, too many how is this a question of, of distribution, but obviously capitalism doesn't it requires that distribution doesn't happen in a fair and uh, and kind of useful and uh, I mean that yeah, the whole point is that, that, that there has to be a, a, a false sense of scarcity mm -hmm. well this is this is an interesting thing and i think you know um tom mcgowan's work kind of uh, uh touches on this because you obviously the idea of you know work sucks enforced work sucks but also at the same time i don't know if you call it work what do you call uh spending time on a project that you enjoy <laughs> <laughs> that's not paid or that might be paid but you actually want to do it 
Yeah. I don't know if there's a different term, you know. You know, it um, might be called pleasure or it might be called getting duped into I, I have this question all the time, right? Like yeah. I, I love the work that I do. Yeah. Uh, which yeah. means that I'm doing things that I'm not compensated for, right? And and, and even yeah. writing books, like I I feel like there's real value in that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um but uh, even if my book does really well, I probably won't cover the cost that I spent cost, just yeah. on coffee like Absolutely. while writing it, right? <laughs> like I, I probably won't, right? Yeah. Um so because the average academic book does like 400 copies ever so even if i do like several times that i realistically Uh i won't make my money back um yeah Yeah. so so it's uncompensated um and it's it's the precise opposite of we also Uh kind of discussed the the bullshit job that david graber has (laughs) has looked at where 39 percent of people will say that Mm -hmm. their job contributes it's not not a shit job it's not like Mm -hmm. because there are shit jobs that are actually doing things like cleaning things as a shit Mm -hmm. job but you're actually Mm -hmm. contributing real value right like the most important jobs in societies are are teachers farmers and and, mm-hmm. and waste collectors right Absolutely. those are shit jobs but like the, the you know they you're doing real value whereas Absolutely. like some yeah. like a hedge fund manager is not um, mm-hmm. and and so if 39% of people call their their jobs bullshit Mm-hmm. that's the precise opposite right where you're getting paid to do yeah. something you understand there's no value your boss understands there's no value you have to pretend your boss has to pretend it's frustrating for everybody it's, it's spiritually um horrifying right like it, it, yeah, it, it's yeah. killing people um it, and quite literally too right like that, that's part of, i think part of the addiction uh yeah, uh, yeah the you know, issue drug. that we're but um but yeah but that then that's that's kind of i think the polar opposite end of, of what you're describing yeah. right? and it's interesting because as you say like it tends to be bullshit jobs for which you have various qualifications and management consulting and it, it tends mm-hmm. to do with business and maintaining organizations yet it tend to be the better paid ones but mm-hmm. the, the ones that are actually vital mm-hmm. um, but talking about you know this kind of unpaid work and paid work obviously we have something and Pierre Bourdieu talked about this a lot the idea of cultural capital and I wonder if this has anything um, in terms of the generational divide because we have this idea of um, True or not true, uh, people who voted for Trump, you know, working classes, which is absolutely, there are people who are in certain parts of the states who have no capital. And then the younger generation who are the, well, the idea of the, you know, the the cultural elites or the, um, what do you call it, the the coastal elites mm. or young people who are very educated or whatever. But there's an, there's an idea, and I, I read somewhere, you know, this somebody was getting angry about the idea of the older, the boomer generation who were the people who potentially voted for Trump were working class because what constitutes working class and that the 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 younger generation who you know feel you know rightly very hard done by and have huge amounts of debts and stuff and have have nothing will never have a house that potentially somebody might have there's wide range of people who voted for Trump but the idea might be you know there's an idea of cultural capital and actual capital and there's this perceived idea of privilege in both groups mm-hmm. i don't know if i'm making myself clear but you know potentially there's an idea that younger generation with greater education even though they've got into huge amounts of debt for it have a sort of cultural capital that is threatening to it to a different group of people mm-hmm. yeah the, um well the, the the first place that this makes me go is is back to that that book what's the matter with kansas which which i actually yeah. just read like after i finished this book it, it's a classic i probably should have yeah. read it before um, but he, you know, in that book, he makes a, a case that uh, one of the things that's characteristic of our time with especially conservatism in America is that class has been reframed as a state of mind or as a, mm-hmm. as a cultural thing. Like, it has nothing to do with how much money you make. Right. Yeah. So during, you know, when it was Carrie v. Bush, for example, and, mm-hmm. you know, it was um, people found that Bush was the, the the person who was part of their class, even if he had yeah. far more money. It, you know, it, that that doesn't mm-hmm. have anything to do with it. Right. Um, and in, in the same way, Trump is, you know, maybe a billionaire. We don't really know. But mm-hmm. but he's he's my class, whereas like, you know, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders, who who makes, you know, uh, tens of thousands of dollars a year is is is, is up there, you know. So, yeah, uh, yeah. so there's this weird way of thinking of class, but yeah, but there is there's a difference between like actual power and governmental power and cultural mm-hmm. power, right? Because it's probably true. I think we discussed this, but like you know, it's probably true to say that liberals have all the cultural power in a mm-hmm. sense. Right? I mean, like if we're talking about like in sheer terms of like entertainment, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Probably nobody voted for Trump. That's uh, well, yeah, I'm not skeptical. 
probably on the boards, yes, but mm-hmm. uh, but pr- the actual producers of films are, are probably mm-hmm. uh, the, at least centrist liberals. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so conservatives look at that and say, well, you're having all the power, you're influencing our kids, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. And then liberals look at conservatives and say, yeah, you like have control of X number of state houses and this many branches of government, and mm-hmm. uh, you know we have power over the TV, sure, but you're actually getting people killed, and so yeah, yeah. So both both perceive themselves as kind of. And then the left has nothing, right? So, well, yeah. this is the thing because interesting you say you say conservatives, liberals, and the left, and this is something that actually is what Adrian inspired Adrian and I to do this podcast at all was this misframing of liberals as the left. Yeah, no, and that's that's me, obnoxious. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and you know, it is it's you hear you hear like it's funny. You'd often I'd often hear like a, a a critique of one thing or another, and then there's this this gradually you're like really oh you actually don't understand the dynamics that play at all and. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Because I, to me, I, I think liberals are conservatives as well. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the, as in, well, they're both capitalists. Is potentially what well, I would say. Yeah, yeah, I would say early in my graduate studies, when I was first getting my head around this, um, mm-hmm. uh, Clayton Crockett, uh, who yeah. wrote a book called I think Radical Political Theology, is where he mm-hmm. explains this. And, and and this was a brand new concept to me at the time. Now I mm-hmm. do so much political theory that like I literally don't know anybody except like weird media figures on Twitter that yeah, like think yeah. of liberals as left, but yeah, yeah, nobody yeah. in political theory thinks of it that way. Absolutely, and it's very, yeah. it's, an, it's an American thing too, right? Like in, mm-hmm. in Europe, you don't have to have that much education to understand that liberals and the left are, are yeah, farther yeah. apart than conservatives mm-hmm. and liberals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but Clayton Crockett put it kind of this way. He said, you know, if you think of the political spectrum along two axes that are parallel, mm-hmm. one is capitalist and anti-capitalist and mm-hmm. the other is progressive on human rights and regressive on human rights or reactionary mm-hmm. on human rights. Um, you can kind of see how, like, so you have the reactionary against human rights and pro-capitalist. That's that's the far right, mm-hmm. and then the left is is human emancipation, but also anti-capitalist, and that's the left. Where mm-hmm. are the liberals? Well, I mean, they they do make minor like you know overtures to to human mm-hmm. rights, mm-hmm. but they are pretty firmly capitalist. And so, the, yeah. the, like in, in the classic way of thinking of this, this puts liberalism in the, liberalism is the center, right? Absolutely. So, yeah. and, and 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 usually in, pra- in at least in theory and in practice, mm-hmm. it actually veers pretty far to the right because if it has to mm-hmm. pick between mm-hmm. human rights and and uh, donors, it's gonna it, it's not much of a mystery which it goes, right? So, so any sort of central moderate position between liberals and conservatives is, I think of it as like the, that means your starting point is about seventy five percent to the ultra right, right? Uh, and and especially when the when the ultra right never has any sort of concern for the rules of the game, right? It, it's not going to respect you for giving ground. Uh, you're you're setting yourself up for failure, right? So you know. Mm. But this is where I kind of see the you know this is this, it's such vehement antagonism between the liberals and the conservatives because mm-hmm. I almost see it as a narcissism of small differences mm-hmm. and also a kind of. I think part of the reason why there is so much resentment and anger is this idea that li- the liberal position is somehow dishonest mm. because and. You know, I I potentially would agree with that because it's a kind of doing exactly the same thing, but paying lip service to certain framing things. And almost it's potentially more capitalist than than the conservative conservative position position because Mm -hmm. it's framing a lot of things. It's doing the precise capitalist thing, which is selling itself as something that does a certain thing underneath. There is, you know, there's lots of memes online about this uh, that um, I can can share with you. And we've talked about them very soon. The latest one I saw was a... um, you know, it was a still from footage of a war in the Middle East, a kind of American uh, invasion or whatever. And the conservative war is just the picture. And the liberal war is the picture with kind of emojis on it, like a unicorn, mm. a rainbow, <laughs> or a smiley face, you know. So, yeah, but it's how, how do we... And obviously, I think that just um, in the West, in the UK, as well as the US we're so caught up in a kind of question, you know, a a, a dance between liberal and conservative, but there's something completely else, you know, other, other perspectives at play that need to kind of somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, God, there's there's so much there, right? Uh, especially in our moment, as we're we're trying to figure out like whether or not the Democratic Party needs to to go further left and mm-hmm. uh, or or you know keep uh, caving into the right. But yeah, um, yeah uh, you you said something that that really had me thinking about something. But um, 
<laughs> yeah, well, yeah, no, I mean, one of the things that makes me think of is, I think it was Henry Kissinger or one of those other war criminals who, yeah, I can't remember, some war criminal once said something mm-hmm. to the effect of like, this is why academics have such vehement debates because the stakes are so low or something like that, right? You know, and, and I think that um, it's, it's probably fair to say that um, that the, the difference between conservative liberals is, is exactly that logic, right? Mm-hmm. Like the stakes are really, are you going to tax like this millionaire at this rate or at that rate? And in either way, we know that they're going to get away with not paying a rate, right? Because yeah. Yeah. because they have lawyers. Um, but but like that's that's all we're going to debate about, right? Yeah. And um, yeah, I think that there's. I, I know here in the U.S., I'm, I'm seeing a lot of people who will talk about. Um, uh, you know, like Bernie Bros, or mm-hmm. um, or even like Warren, try to frame it as a thing about whiteness, uh, mm-hmm. and pretend that they don't understand that there's more to uh, class politics than identity alone, mm-hmm. or or mm-hmm. you know, external features or whatever. Um, and and um, I mean, I, I want to be careful about how I say this, but like one one thing that always comes to mind is I know that whoever's making that critique and like trying to make a case for like Kamala Harris, for example, mm-hmm. um, because she does represent a, 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 a broader swath of American uh, society that's never been represented and, and it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know that at the same time, that person would not vote for Sarah Palin <laughs> if yeah, she was yeah, the, if she was yeah. the only woman. Right. So, so it's like you yeah. understand that there's a difference in politics, mm-hmm. but you're going to pretend mm-hmm. like there's not for yeah. this moment because it's beneficial yeah. right it's funny because i see like obviously that there's you have this the, the the notion of surplus value in terms of capital but you also have these other contingent um i don't know if contingent is the right word because capital almost came about in a certain way and you have these um structural imbalances but it's it's there's they're they're, they're, they're both they're separate in a certain way but also, you know, because of this notion of surplus value. Um, and I don't think it can be understood without surplus value, but there's kind of a contingent structure, you know, as in a historical sure. imbalances and then like just what capital is in and of itself. And I think those things are kind of interplay, but also can't be under- understood without the idea of, of surplus value. So talking, going back to the film, actually, um, maybe we can talk a little bit more about how psychoanalysis comes into play, because this is this is the, I mean, uh, I, what I really enjoy. But, um, yeah. I, I, so the idea of the xenomorph, I kind of see it as the, the return of the real, you know, this thing that would just never go away, no matter how many, uh, how much you can try to control it and blow it up and it's always there and will always come back and in, in you know the alien um franchise just it keeps coming back sure. so no yeah. matter how we symbolically deal with it and i think this maybe comes into the idea that we're talking about with politics no matter how you put you know nice spin on inequalities there's always that antagonism there and that's part of as a result of language is gonna be there mm-hmm. um so we have to kind of find a way to take that into consideration yeah 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 no it, it's always coming back and and in the midst of that there's there's always these in each alien movie i feel like there's mm-hmm. these very real moments where people don't know if they're going to choose to do the thing that will clearly save them or not and yeah, it doesn't yeah. seem it doesn't seem forced like right so when the crew is deciding should we you know do this thing where we can get rid of it real quick by flushing it out the airlock and abandoning ship or should we try to fight mm-hmm. it off I can see people trying to make like I'd be really surprised if people like abandoned ship and and gave up their their you know cut of the 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 profits right yeah. <laughs> like that seems really real even if it was going to kill every last one of you people yeah. would do that um you know I um, you know, I, you know, I, I actually have had students in my class, like actually quite recently, even like this happens from time to time where students will be talking about, you know, money and value and life and ethics in the midst of that. And sometimes students will say something like this as simple night and day, like cut and dry differences. Like if it's, if it's my money or my life, I'll choose my money. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. even, even like the inherent contradiction there is yeah. it's, it's a very human thing. And yeah, in, in each alien movie, like the second one, it's like a, you know, it's like there's 
actual Marines. And then like, you yeah. know, in the third one, it's like, do we care about prisoners? prisoners? And yeah, we're going to kill yeah. off the protagonist, but actually she's not gone. And yeah. then I think, I mean, I think the greatest turn in that is the weird way that they tried to rethink everything in Prometheus, where they make it yeah. about like, once you discover your God, you're going to find out that your God himself actually wants mm -hmm. nothing more than to kill you off, right? Like the aliens yeah. just like a trap that they set like millions of years ago so that they could kill off their sons when they when when their sons like found them or something right yeah, yeah. yeah like there's that there's that return of the repressed too right you can't reason with dad right dad wants to kill you at the end of the day yeah. right so yeah. it, it is interesting because um uh, just talking about the idea of like uh, uh, this repeat you know a franchise a continual infinite franchise and obviously james bond is one a bit like then adrian and uh when we did an episode in james bond had a really interesting insight about the idea of revolving around this kind of well, like objet petit and how it kind of like works in this idea because we we basically with James Bond it's like we know how it's going to end we kind of want him to have the woman or the, I don't know if you've seen on her on Her Majesty's Secret Service he gets married and it's like if he get, got married that would be the end and then the woman has to die and then it starts but we we know what you know Ripley survives and we know, we know how it's going to end but there's this weird it's the even though we know it, we get this like enjoyment about revolving around this kind of and I don't know. I don't know how that kind of idea comes into play with with uh, a, the Alien franchise. But um, yeah, we kind of want, both want want it as in it's killed off at the end of each one. But there's always some way in which it miraculously comes back. Each, yeah. each um, she manages to blow it off at the end of Alien One. But no, it's inside, isn't it? Inside. Yeah, there's, there's always some way in which she has to get back into the situation. Sure, yeah. Well, yeah. also, though, there's this um, there's this difference between filmmaking in that era mm -hmm. and then, like, the, the way that the series progresses where, mm -hmm. like, the, the alien starts to show up a lot sooner, right? Yeah. Um, yeah because yeah. back in the day, we uh, an alien, it, I think the, the egg pops in onto the guy that with the face hugger like something like yeah. an hour into it right yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um and i always kind of think of this as like the the difference between like 90s and before storytelling and like yeah. after like the saw franchise and texas chainsaw mm -hmm. or what but like but like if you i mean i, I don't at the risk of being zizak here but like if like titanic for example james cameron <laughs> assumes that in order to get you interested in a story about mass mm -hmm. death he has to give you like a love story to get you invested right like, he has mm -hmm. to really work at pulling you in right mm -hmm. and, and like a few years later the Saw franchise starts and actually shows that actually you no know, like people don't give a damn about that like people yeah. are perfectly willing like if you had just had like two hours of the Titanic and just started it the moment that it hits an iceberg and just watch people freeze to death people totally would have gone to the movie theaters for that right and, and that's, that's what you and that's what you get with like horror movies today right you can yeah. actually have the horror start like in the first 10 15 minutes yeah, um, yeah. and and people are fine with that right so yeah, it's, it's true it's it, you're absolutely right and even in yeah, the, the second alien, there's a huge laying of the groundwork. It's interesting, the latest film that I saw that was really took a long time to kind of like lay the runway with the film was the um, Star Wars uh, Rogue One. And I wonder why they really kind of like had to had to lay a huge amount of groundwork for this whole thing to this kind of disaster, disaster to occur. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, horror almost is like a is like a genre in and of itself whereby certain rules are just bypassed. You know what you're gonna get. It's mm -hmm. kind of as in you know, Titanic has a horror element to it, but yeah, it's sure. always painted in a kind of different vessel. Yeah, yeah. Like, but, but, you know, I also mentioned, like, you know, um, like, I just, I love science fiction so much. Mm -hmm. I, I'm spending a lot of, I, I, I think I mentioned last time that, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, when I was a kid, I would wake up on, you know, Saturdays or Sundays and whenever we got the TV guide and I would flip through it to see if, you know, various sci-fi shows were on and Alien mm -hmm. was one and I would check because I wasn't allowed to see the, the unedited version and just buy the movie. <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, growing up, like, uh, you know, Alien, but also... Uh, the t utopianism of Star Trek and the yeah. the sort of uh, grungy warfare and heroism of Star Wars. Like I loved mm. all of that, and, and now I'm kind of um, very interested in in reading a lot of. I'm reading a lot of sci-fi right now, um, especially sci-fi that kind of takes place in like near future. That's trying to think yeah. about humans. Uh, acclimating to climate change and you know like in kind of I mean it's just such an interesting vehicle to project like the human id and like the mm -hmm. idealism as well right like the question of whether or not we're going to you know abandon New York City um, 
uh, or after after the seawalls fail, um, or yeah. if instead we're going to turn it into New Venice and and yeah. just accept a flooded city with canals and gondolas and and, and uh, building bridges and stuff like that, and, and shove yeah. the poor out of it, right? Where you only have you have a one percenter city um, yeah. that's that you know only has the the middle class there to do your uh, you know Uber gondola or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah but like, but that, that's the thing that sci-fi can give you is that yeah. it can project all of these different futures and. Mm-hmm. And horrors and ids and idealisms and all of that yeah that, so i, yeah, I just i just love spe- the whole genre yeah, yeah. yeah speculative fiction is some kind of like way canvas on which to kind of experiment with with different different ideas and yeah. different futures yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely i know horror, the horror genre because obviously alien is well it's funny because it it's horror but also thriller and all these other things i i have not really i don't really enjoy horror that much but then I will watch documentaries about earthquakes and plane crashes. So maybe you know, I just like kid myself that I don't like that kind of thing. And it's always like a kind of part of me that I don't want to admit to or something. But yeah, no, some people are like really into horror and sci-fi is an interesting one. Absolutely. But yeah, the idea that like not to be medicinal or utilitarian about it, but that storytelling can be a way in which we enact certain, you know, it has, it has something other than just pure escapism. And escapism is also occasionally fine and fine and if you frame it in a certain way but yeah this idea that things can be explored there yeah absolutely so do you have a are you working on another book tad well i'm i'm thinking about the next phase right now and Mm -hmm. i'm i'm kind of thinking i might be a little bit interested into getting into more fiction or storytelling Mm -hmm. um but I'm, i'm not sure i have a couple of ideas and uh you know we'll kind of i think i think Right now, I, I'm kind of interested in, for example, I mean, I'm a religion scholar in mm-hmm. addition to a philosopher, right? So, you know, when I'm thinking about what I'm interested in now, it, the overarching theme is uh, climate change and fascism studies, and I'm sort of yeah, overlapping yeah. onto religion. But you know, um, I'm so, for example, I'm not really interested in in how um, you know climate change is going to. Uh, cause us to rethink certain religious precepts, um, but that, that's the benefit of being an atheist in all of this, yeah. right? Um, but but I am really interested in how you know these. I, sometimes I joke that I kind of want my future work since I want it to organize itself around climate change and, and story and imagining the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm really interested in this genre that happened I think a lot in the 2000s I think it's mm-hmm. kind of dying down but there was this whole genre of like the future of American faith will be about pluralism and love and you know all of these different you know groups intersecting and getting us a, a differences aside and I'm actually interested in like what's the opposite of that right what what happens when um, entire se- countries in Central America have to be abandoned and the, yeah. the walls go up and the liberals are saying no walls smart century drones instead and yeah. you know and like the absolute horror of yeah. Xenophobia yeah. that's kind of on yeah. its way. I'm really interested in in how something like you know American Christianity is just perfectly tailored to just fall right into that trap of xenophobia and fascism and brutality. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think that um, um, while while you know writing about even American evangelicalism has kind of taken its toll on me, and I think I need to set mm-hmm. it aside for a bit. I, mm-hmm. I am really interested in thinking about what what's our future look like and, and what's what what are things that we need to be on on the lookout for as warnings, but also like what are um, what are what are good possibilities that you know how is how are my you know like if, if I if I have like great grandchildren, um, mm-hmm. they're going to live in a world which is like four point something degrees Celsius hotter, and to them mm-hmm. that's not going to be that much different than 3.9 right like mm-hmm. so how how is the new normal going to feel for for the future and, and how is that going to intersect with our political and class and um, mm-hmm. ethnic and and religious differences so that's, that, that's what I'm interested in right now it's funny we really should have had you on the episode that we talked about first reform <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh, well, yeah I know we just, I just, uh, just watched yeah. it and it, I mean yeah. such a fantastic yeah, uh, it's yeah really no, it, is, it is really an incredible an incredible film yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Anyway, we're about we're about at the hour. Okay. Um, so that's generally the length of our podcast. But th- right. thank you so much for taking the time to do this episode twice. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, and, thanks for having um, me on. It was it's really fun to explore 
topics that I don't usually get to. Um, yeah. And uh, I just want to say this again. I, I hope everyone is uh, is watching your movie. It, it's such an excellent work, and oh, it really you so gets. Much. It just. Thank I I so love much. the way of like even the repetition of the story that you use throughout, yeah. and just the idea of like getting what you want, um, killing things, and in uh, you know <laughs> I, I think that we need to kind of think about that a lot in our culture. Not yeah, just absolutely. not just interpersonally, yeah, but I, like what happens when yeah. what happens when like a, a you know a ravenous group gets their goal of, of destroying mm. things or you know, I know like exactly the, all, yeah, yeah. yeah I think I think psychoanalysis has so much to 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 I don't know if it's teach us but to illuminate in terms of how we as as humans self sabotage mm-hmm. and the implications of our are very str- this you know, you know the result of language and how it structures us mm-hmm. and how we interplay with the world we're in and I do think storytelling is a fantastic, fantastic way to, to, yeah, to explore that yeah. yeah brilliant okay thanks so much and uh, we will hopefully be releasing an episode next week as well <laughs> so all right thank excellent you very much. thanks bye.